Hi, my name is Emily. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 3 through 7. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Mia. The, old, the New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-5. through 5. Brothers and sisters, I want you to be sure of the fact that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all went through the sea. All were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. However, God was unhappy with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Brett. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Luke 22, verses 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, pay attention. Satan has demanded to have you all to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus replied, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, with readings like that, you're probably wondering what the sermon's about today. (laughs) The New Testament reading ends with God striking them in the wilderness, and the gospel reading is about Peter denying Christ. (laughs) You're thinking, happy Mother's Day, you know. (laughs) Just a cheery message for all of us. We're in the middle of a series called Church in the City, and we're working through 1 Corinthians, which is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and so... We've, we've just kind of been reminding ourselves of sort of the setting of this and how Corinth um, was this rebirth city. It was a city that had its heyday a few hundred years before the time of Christ and then was destroyed, lay in ruins for about a hundred years, and then it gets reestablished as this capital city of this Roman province, and it becomes a favorite destination for Roman emperors because of its location by the water. There's games that happen every two years there. It becomes thriving in commerce, again, because of its location as a, uh, near, with ports and all of that. And so there's a new wealth, there's a new success that has come to this city. And Paul comes in here, and this is the first time that a church is planted in a major city, in a city of this size. And so part of the, 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 um, the message of Corinthians is what does it take to be the church in the midst of a true and, and real city, a big city? Like, okay, so the gospel can work in kind of smaller towns, rural areas, but does the gospel have anything to say to the big city types? Moreover, how can we as the people of God live 
when we are the minority in the midst of a culture, a culture that has its own way of ordering life, the culture that has its own way of prioritizing things? How do we live as the people of God in the midst of the world? So last week in chapter 9, we kind of resumed, we took a little break for Lent, and we resumed, and last week we talked about chapter 9, we talked about what do we do with ambition, and we said, look, God does not say no to our ambition, instead he invites us to let our ambition be reshaped around the gospel, and to wake us up to a larger story, and a bigger invitation for something for us to be part of, and so we talked about what it means to run in such a way as to win, and to run as someone who's already won in Christ. Today, as we move into chapter 10, we're going to explore a little bit of the question of how do we make this last? How does this faith become not just a faith that flourishes in the now, but flourishes for generations to come? How do we stand? How do we stand beyond today? Our title this morning, I don't often kind of introduce the sermon by a title, but the title will sort of give away the answer. It's standing in the faithfulness of God. Now, when we think about standing, oftentimes we focus on the big picture, maybe the end of the race, and we say, okay, so what do you want on your tombstone when you die, or what's going to be your legacy, and all of that. But I find that it's very difficult to think like that, because It's not very often in life that you sort of chart out a goal and then the steps toward that goal and then everything follows according to plan, right? I think think our older brothers and older sisters in this congregation who've lived more decades than than some of the others of us might say, yeah, Glenn, that's not how it works. Like, I thought I was headed this way and instead we went this way. And very often when we look back at our life and we see if we've stood and, and been able to withstand Really, it's the result of several small little obediences, if you will, small faithfulness in these incremental places, these little moments of testing. And Paul begins this chapter by talking about their forefathers. He says, our ancestors Israel. And it makes me think about families. It makes me think about what kind of families, what kind of heritage you have or I have. You've heard me mention that my dad came from uh, a Hindu family, and at some point in his life, really because of my mom, and I'm going to talk about my mom in just a minute, she doesn't know this, but it's okay, I have the microphone. Uh, But because of meeting my mom, my dad decided, since she wasn't going to marry a Hindu, that he would have to remedy that. And he converted, and it was a line in the sand, it was a way of saying, Everything up until this point is now set aside and a new line begins. Now, my mom has been hugely instrumental in shaping not only his life, of course, but for my sister and I. Now, this is kind of special for me because I I don't think I've been with my mom physically on a Mother's Day in a really long time. I mean, maybe 20 years. So since I have the microphone and since my mom is here, I I want to say some of the ways that my spiritual heritage has shaped me. I think about the way that my mom always cultivated the gifts and the calling of God in my own life. I have a distinct memory of being six or seven and sitting in the living room with my mom and she's telling me the story of Jesus dying for our sins. And I kept trying to say, well, Jesus died for the whole world. And she said, yes, but, but he died for you. And this was the beginning of my 
my, uh, my wrestling between the cosmic big gospel and the small personal gospel. I kept wanting to say, but it's, it's big. And she said, yeah, but it's deeply personal. It was for you. And though I would respond to maybe 63 other altar calls growing up as a good Pentecostal, <laughs> I think the first time I, I prayed was with my mom. I also, I also remember my mom teaching me to think. And so I would say something, say some sort of opinion, and she'd say, well, why, why do you think that's true? Why do you believe that? And oftentimes, you know, the kids have the reputation of asking the why. In our home, is my mom always asked us the why. And if you've read C.S. Lewis's story of how his tutor taught, introduced him to logic and how it sort of dismantled his world because he realized he didn't know how to put logical thoughts together, that was my mom for me, teaching us how to think, teaching us how to put thoughts together and articulate them. And then my mom was an a Old Testament teacher at the Bible school that she and my dad started. And so when I was homeschooled during my high school years, I would sit in on these Bible classes, and that's where I had this profound love for the Bible. I would listen to my mom teach about the Old Testament. And I would think, you can see God in every page of the Scripture. And so I've, I'm thankful today, Mom, for your investment in me, for the heritage. It's a wonderful thing. I know for a lot of us here that that's not always the case. Some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, there's a great sadness and there's great pain. Some, so many people avoid church on Mother's Day, and I understand why. Because it's the source of difficulty and maybe reminds you that you're not where you'd hope to be for whatever reason. You're not a mother yet. Or, but I want to say that there is something about all women that you have as a woman that is able to reflect the image of God into our world, whether you're a physical, mother, biological mother or not. That all women have this way of reflecting into the world the nurture, the love of God. One way or another, we are all shaped by our parents. And some of us have been shaped in good ways, others of us shaped in painful ways. And so when you hear the subject come up and say, what about our story? What about our family's story? What about our lineage? What do we do with this? What Paul does with this for the Corinthian church is he says, listen, your ancestors, your parents, your spiritual parents, your foreparents were both an example and a warning. There were things that they did that are there for you. These stories are there for you so that you never repeat them again. I mean, Paul takes a fairly negative view of this. Now turn with me. Chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. I want to mark out five things. It's, it's five steps to falling away, but I'm going to read these, these verses first. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now if you're the underlining type, You'll see Paul use this phrase, as they did, over and over again, as they did, as they did, as they did. And that's a way of, of, of saying what are the individual things he's pointing out. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul's saying, look, all of us have parents, ancestors that have gone before us. 
And we can look at that story and we can say, thank God, or we can look at that story and say, why God? But whatever the case is, there's some measure of looking back towards our our lineage and saying, okay, God, what is it that we are never going to repeat? What is it that we don't want to bring forward into our families or into our world or into our own lives? Some of you, you've made decisions about your own life based on things that your family of origin was. And you say, I'm never going to be like this. And Paul says, yeah, there's something about that 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 is good because the message of our ancestors, the message of those who have gone before us, it's written down, it's recorded, it's passed on. These stories are passed on for our instruction and for our warning. So I want you to look at five things that I think Paul is saying just really quickly. Five steps to falling away. Again, another cheery angle. Verse 6, he points out wrong desires. I think there is something that Paul's saying is, look, the root of all of this began with wrong desires. And it's a reference to, in the wilderness, them wanting more than manna. Saying, yeah, it's pretty cool that this strange stuff, what is it, the whatchamacallit that fell from heaven, that's what manna means, what is it? It's, it's, it's cool that this stuff came from heaven, but we want more. We want more than this stuff. There's got to be something else, something more tasty, more flavorful. And Paul's saying, look, what you're seeing here is there's wrong desires. Something is going askew. And then he says there's, there's wrong gods. They began to worship idols. This is a, no doubt a reference to them making the golden calf. And you'll recall what they said was they made this golden calf and they said, now this is the God who led us out of Egypt. They had the action or the activity right, but they had the identity wrong. They said, okay, this is the God who gives us what we want. This salvation that I'm looking for, it comes from this God. See, oftentimes idolatry, and we're going to say more about this in a moment, idolatry is not simply worshiping the wrong gods, but it's attributing the wrong things to something else. It's saying, okay, I'm looking for this, and that can give it to me. It's saying salvation or peace or, or wholeness, that doesn't come from here. That comes from here. It's, 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 it's attributing the wrong characteristics to something else. But then out of that wrong desire and that wrong gods comes wrong practice. Here it alludes to their, their sexual immorality with Midianite women, and some of whom were basically like temple prostitutes, not to be crude, but this is the, the, the practice of the day. And this is Paul saying, look, you got all wrong because of wrong desires, wrong gods, wrong practice. And then he says, you put Christ to the test. This is significant, isn't it? Because this is Paul reading the Old Testament story Christologically. Saying you weren't just putting the Lord, Yahweh, to the test. Really, it was Christ who was the rock in the wilderness. And you said Christ is not enough. And Paul says, we're going to reinterpret Israel's decisions, not just as Israel and Yahweh, but Israel in terms of rejecting Christ to some degree. Wrong thinking. That's wrong thinking. And then he says, okay, finally, you end up murmuring and ungrateful. That's wrong posture. That's taking the posture of an entitled, whiny kind of individual. Oh, God, how come we don't have this? And how come we don't have that? Instead of the posture of gratitude. Now, verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So the question then for us is, what does this look like in us? Do we 
see these five layers maybe working in our own lives. You know, it's interesting because so often when we think about standing and not falling, and you look at this list of five, what's the thing we jump to to focus on right away? Number three, right? Wrong practice. When you think about falling, you go right away to the behavior that was wrong, and you think, oh, how do I fix that behavior? It's the great trap even for parents to say, okay, how do I, I need to change my child's behavior. We do this with ourselves, we do this with others, we want to jump right away to number three, wrong practice. How do I change the behavior? Instead of saying, maybe this really began at a layer much deeper than that. Let's work through a little example. Let's say it begins with the wrong desire where we say, you know what, what I really want in life, the thing I truly desire, my desire above all desires is to be happy. That's my desire. I mean, it sounds so good. Movies would corroborate it. Novels will, will back it up. So this is just what I, I just, hey man, I just want to be happy. And so happiness is kind of my desire of desires. But you know what then you do is then you make God's out of the things that you think gives you that happiness. So all of a sudden, a friendship becomes an idol because you believe that it promises you something you want. See, again, an idol is something that you believe can give you what you really want. You start to say, oh, that thing, that promises me happiness. I, I think it can give it to me. So I'll give my life to my career. Actually, this can take this can happen even with very innocent things, couldn't it? This can happen within a marriage where all of a sudden a spouse becomes the chief source of your happiness and you say, you're the one that can deliver on what I want. You're the one that can deliver on my desires. And so you start to make that person or that relationship the idol, the, the all-powerful thing. And then it begins to result in wrong practice. Like what? Well, like starting to control the relationship when it doesn't go the way you want. Starting to manipulate. Starting to find ways to get what you need out of others. How do we slide into this? Because we've begun to make an idol out of something. We've begun to believe that it can deliver on our desires. And then we slip into the wrong thinking thing. We say, well, Jesus, yeah, Jesus is all cute and all, and I go to church, and I put money in the bucket, and I, I, mean, I, and I serve, and that's very cute. But, but Jesus, let's be honest, Jesus isn't going to take care of what I really want, so he's okay if I serve him, but also get what I need here, here, and here. Do you see how we slide into this? This is the wrong thinking. And then all of a sudden, we develop this wrong posture where we say, okay, God, you owe me. I'm serving you, but actually you're not. You're serving this desire that you've made, the chief desire of desires. But you think you're serving God, and then you, you come to God and say, God, you owe me. But basically, you're serving your own desire, and God is just another vehicle to get what you want. Do you see how this happens in us? It's worth reflecting on very deeply to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've somehow slipped down the same path this is why I think temptations are really an invitation to examine your soul. Temptations are really an in invitations to examine our soul. We don't often think of temptations as invitations. We always think of temptations as, oh, I just got to get out of here. I just got to, I just got to, I got to pass the test. I got to, I got to make sure I don't fall. And 
Look, all of that is true. But I wonder if from this text, Paul is showing us, look, the lesson from our ancestors is that the problem begins much deeper than we thought. The problem is not simply, oh, how did I end up here? How did I make this mistake? But the problem is something that we've been able to mask or cover for all of these years. I've, um, in January, I began seeing a spiritual director. And I know in Sunday school here, Tara is teaching us a little bit about what that is. What is spiritual direction? And learning to listen to the Holy Spirit and paying attention with someone else. And I, I'm doing this because just because I'm in ministry or in leadership doesn't mean that automatically my soul is always cared for. In fact, that's one of the myths, isn't it? That you're a leader, or you're in, so your soul has got to be like on self-clean mode, you know? <laughs> self-cleaning mode, you know? Just... <laughs> I wanted someone who is off the grid to help prayerfully pay attention to my own soul with me. And one of the things my spiritual director was talking to me, has been talking to me about is the idea of these difficulties in life, whether there's a, it's a trial or whether it is a temptation, to say these are invitations. These are invitations to see something deeper going on in your life. And I'll give you a, perhaps a surface example of this, you know, talking to him about how obsessed I am with refreshing Twitter <laughs> and other social media things and refreshing it all the time. Which there's a certain irony in refreshing social media and not refreshing your own soul, right? We talked about, could this be an invitation to see a deeper loneliness or a deeper sadness, something deeper inside your own soul that you don't pay attention to? Friends, how often do we move so quickly through the day? I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to go here, I got to get this done, I'm, I'm moving, I'm going, I'm going. And then it's a temp- something comes up and you're tempted to feel angry or irritated or feel gypped or offended or hurt or resentful or whatever it is. And, and then you say, rrr, rrr, well, that's just because, you know, they don't really care about me. And, you know. But what if in those moments when you feel those thoughts coming up, you say, Spirit of God, has something gone wrong out of alignment in my own heart? Has something a miss in my own life. See, St. Augustine said, listen, sin is not just desiring the wrong things. Sin is desiring the right things wrongly. Augustine wrote about disordered desires that very often, look, the desire for happiness or the desire to be loved, those are good desires. But when we allow one to become higher than it should, all of a sudden our life is disordered. And the moment of temptations are the moment where we can say, God, are you inviting me to see something deeper than I've, never, that I've ever seen before? Are you inviting me to see that I've actually got some disordered desires? That all of a sudden it's not just about saying no to lust or saying no to the... But it's, it's also about saying, God, what is out of alignment in my own heart? Temptations are invitations to actually examine your soul. But let's say this in the positive How do we shape desires properly? How do we shape our lives? Maybe one of the things we can say from this this layers of five is to say that, look, in order to, to arrive at the life that we want, it begins not just with training ourselves with the right habits of behavior, you know, but it begins 
with training our loves, training our heart to love properly. Again, a very Augustinian idea. I'm sure Holly is attending to Jane somewhere, but this is one of the things I think Holly does so well as a mom, is training our children to love rightly, to desire rightly. You heard it come out of her in her prayer because this is the kind of thing that's in her. But we talk often about the good and the beautiful and the true. Mothers, one of the things mothers do so well is point our children towards saying, where is goodness? Where is beauty? Where is truth? Where is this in nature? Where is this in art? Where is this in story? How do we cultivate this? How do we see this? And again, I want to say, I think this is a gift that all women have, mother or not. That there's something that women have been given to reflect the image of God into our world that is all about shaping loves, shaping desires, teaching us to celebrate something, to see beauty, to see the joy, to see the life. And it's oftentimes <laughs> me in my home who's saying, let's just, let's go, let's keep moving, we got to get, you know, and she's saying, well, let's, can we just read a little bit longer? We got to get the kids to bed right now, we got to, we're stopping to embrace the, why? Because I think when children grow up seeing that our God is actually the fountain of all that is good and beautiful and true then in nurturing others to see this, we're shaping their desires rightly. We're doing what Augustine said, teach me to love and then I will believe. Teach me to see the beauty of the Lord and then my mind will catch up, maybe. But let my heart be captured by the magnificence of this. Now you're listening to this and you're saying, Glenn, are you saying that this is a guarantee to falling away? That if we do these things, if we do these things in our children, if we do these things for one another as friends, if we do these, is this the way? Is this the guarantee? Are these the five secrets? Obviously not. But the truth is, it's not human skill or human will that keeps us from falling. It is only the faithfulness of God. See, there might be five ways or five steps to fall away, but there's really only one way to stand, and it's the faithfulness of God. Think about this story of Israel. Paul saying, look, God destroyed him in the wilderness. Right, right, right. But is that how Israel's story ends? Is that how Israel's story ends with them sort of dying in the wilderness and God saying, woof, that was a mistake. Where can I start over? Greeks? (laughs) Uh, Romans? Uh. Oh, how do we see the faithfulness of God? What's Paul hinting at here? It's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus comes as the true Israelite. Jesus comes from the lineage of Israel. Jesus comes and says, listen, the faithfulness of God is I will do on your behalf what you could never do for yourself. You could never stand without falling And so I will do this for you. But more than that, by my coming, because of my coming, I will bring about a new covenant. 
A covenant that doesn't just give you instructions, but leave you with a stony heart. A covenant that says, I will give you the command, but I will also give you the desire for that which I command. I will give you the instruction, and I will give you the heart that will love that instruction. This is the beauty of this. This is why the promise of the new covenant is that God will give us a new heart. A heart that replaces the hard one faithfulness of God over and over again. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There is a sense in here where Paul is trying to say to the Corinthians, listen, there is an illusion that this test will last forever, but it comes in waves, doesn't it? I was rereading Screwtape Letters, that that, that magnificent piece that C.S. Lewis wrote about temptation. And in it, he says, one of the, the senior devils is instructing one of the younger tempters, and he says, listen, make them think that this temptation will last forever and that the only way to make it stop is to just give in. Don't let him realize that this comes in waves. Don't let him realize that there is a way to endure and then it subsides. Don't let him recognize that the grace of God in our lives gets stronger and stronger. Don't let him realize that the battle has already been won. See, Paul agrees with his virtue teachers. Lindsay, we were talking about this. Lindsay teaches philosophy at the Air Force Academy, and she's talking about the, the classical virtue teachers. Paul agrees with the virtue teachers that there are times of testing, and you've got to submit to it. But Paul differs with the virtue teachers in that he says, while the pagan writers stressed human will, Paul stressed the faithfulness of God. The temptations are opportunities to witness God's faithfulness. Temptations are opportunities to witness God's faithfulness, to say, listen, it is God who has done this on our behalf. It is God who has run this perfectly. It is God who has been faithful. It is the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah who has done this for me. And because of his faithfulness, I have been given a new heart. You know what's beautiful? The Feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament was the day that the commandments were given, the giving of the law. We're coming up on it, a few Sundays here coming up in June, Pentecost Sunday. In the Old Testament, it was the day the law was given, but what is it in the book of Acts? It's the day that the Spirit is poured out. Do you see the beauty of this? Not just the instruction, but the power. Not just the teaching, but now the power. And so all of a sudden, the faithfulness of God is seen in saying, okay, not only am I going to give you the instructions, but I'm giving you a new heart to desire it, and now giving you the Spirit, the Spirit to walk this way. When we ask ourselves, how do we last? How do we make it so that our our story that gets passed on to others is not one of warning, but one of testimony. Wouldn't we say that that's what we want? In the end, we say, Lord, 
somehow would you make my life not a warning for generations to come, but a witness? Not a warning that says, now don't, this is how you fall away. No, God, make my story a witness to the faithfulness of God. That can be true for all of you. That can be true for every one of you. Regardless of the mistakes you think you've made, the mistakes you've actually made, the mistakes you're about to make. That when we put our trust in Jesus, the defining word over our lives can be the faithfulness of God. Amen? For all of us here, as you bow your heads this morning, all of us here, it's worth remembering that we don't stand because we have extraordinary skill or exceptional will. We stand because we have a great and faithful God. A God who has gone before us and done this on our behalf. A God who offers us a new heart. See, some of you, you know this, but it's worth being reminded of. Others of you, you've never quite heard it like this. Your impression of church or of Christianity or of faith or religion was, I just got to try to get it right, and if I don't get it right, there's forgiveness for that. So, yeah, cool. Instead of realizing that the gospel is something much more than a new start, it's a new heart. It's new desires. It's the Spirit of God working from within you. And we're going to take a moment to confess. But this confession is not about beating yourself up or feeling the guilt or the shame. This confession is about saying, okay, God, Without you, I will surely fall away, just like Israel did. Without you, I will surely fall away. But God, with you, with you, you can do a renovation in my heart, in my spirit, in my desires, in my soul, with you. So would you take a moment right where you are and just quietly begin to say that. Say, God, I've... I'm sorry for trying to do this with human skill or just better resolve. I don't want that. I want the gospel. I want the gospel. I want the newness that you give, Jesus. New heart. I want your spirit inside me. I want you to work from the inside out, changing my desires smashing my idols, shaping my practice, changing my thinking, so that in the end we can have the posture of the one who receives. See, this is what grace does to you. Grace teaches you to always come to God like this, with hands that are open and held out. In just a moment, we're going to confess, and then we're going to come to the table to receive what has already been offered to us. To receive what has already been given to us. Grace. Grace.